Would you join with me as we pray and uh, ask God to help us have hearts and minds that can engage with what the Spirit of God wants to do in looking at this uh, rather challenging portion of Scripture this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we've been offering to you our praise. We have lifted up our voice in songs. We have celebrated the fact that Christ, you are our only hope of righteousness. You're the only one we can find stability in, Lord, eternal stability and surety. We thank you, Lord, that we can stand confidently upon you, your person and your work. Father, we thank you that we as our church have been gathered here by your design and that we are here, Lord, for the purpose of knowing you, enjoying you, and of making you known. So, Father, we pray that you might uh, help us today to uh, know your word and to know its truths more carefully in terms of what you want us to be aware of, the issues of our hearts, and uh, that we might see, have our lives, Lord, give evidence and bear fruit of the evidence of the Spirit of God as it work in us. Lord Jesus, toward that end, we pray that your Spirit would work mightily even today, Lord, in our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A number of times, Newsweek magazine, Time magazine, have had a front page story published in which they put on the front page of their magazine the search for the real Jesus. I always sort of have a little smile that comes to my face when I read that, and I think to myself, what are they searching for? And where are they going to be searching? And so the article goes into all sorts of theories and all sorts of opinions about various writings of authors other than the eyewitness accounts set forth in the pages of Scripture. And if we're ever going to discover the real Jesus, there's no better way than to read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and to give time and careful attention to examining what those eyewitnesses wrote regarding the actions and words of Jesus Christ. And as I've done that, I have discovered so many insights, new insights, as I've read carefully through Matthew's gospel again and again. We're going to go back to that today. We're back, back to Matthew 21. And we learn in this passage of Scripture, as we learn about the true Jesus, the real Jesus, that he does not fit into some neat stereotype of a person who's said all sorts of non-controversial sayings and inspirational sayings that never offended anybody. The opposite is indeed the case. And I want us to look this morning at an incident recorded in Matthew 21 that illustrates the fact that Jesus, in what he said and what he did, left his disciples and those who really knew him and had spent tremendous amounts of time with him, that he constantly left them filled with wonder and amazement. We talked about that in the first hour in Nick Camelloni's excellent uh, explanation of the issues between God's revelation and the world and science and in, and in the scriptures and uh, the need that we all have to be filled with wonder when we look at those things. Well, after those disciples have they been following Jesus for approximately three years is where we pick up the account here in Matthew 21. 
they saw Jesus perform yet another miracle. And this particular miracle caused them to marvel again at Christ. They couldn't get over him, even though they'd been seeing so many things that he had said and done. And the more they marveled, there were other people who had the opposite reaction to Jesus. And that becomes more clear here in in these chapters of Matthew's Gospel where we've come, that as as one group of people who marvel at him, there's another group of people who are despising him and who are determined to do whatever it takes to destroy him. And so Jesus, in the Gospels, is polarizing. Either you love Jesus or you hate him. Either you are amazed at Jesus or you are annoyed at him. It's interesting how that seems to play itself out very clearly in these passages uh, in Matthew chapter 21 and following. I want us to look this morning at Jesus' words that are revealing and exposing uh, various heart issues here in Matthew 21. Let's look at this text before us, verses 18 to 22. These words come following the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. He came and he cleansed the temple again, the second time in his ministry. And then we come to verse 18. Now in the morning, when Jesus returned to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there, be, shall, there, shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the tree, fig tree, withered. And seeing this, the disciples marveled and said, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it shall happen. And everything you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. Such an interesting passage of Scripture. On the one hand, we're going to see Jesus' speaking words that really led to and were a form of judgment. Words that cause great offense and great difficulty for many people. On the other hand, he's offering words of hope designed to build faith in those who see him for who he really is. So let's look first of all at this pronouncement of doom, point number one. There is an announced pronouncement of doom. And Jesus teaches a lesson on spiritual barrenness or fruitlessness, if you will. If you were to walk around in that vicinity of Jerusalem in the first century, a common sight you would have seen would have been a number of fig trees that were very much as abundantly available as our maple trees here or oak trees. They're about 20 feet tall, and uh, fig trees would provide for those who grew them not only something that would be very valuable, shade from the hot sun, but they also provided sweet snacks. Uh, when I was in Israel years ago as a tourist, I loved their dried figs. I would take several of them early if they would offer them for breakfast with the tourists where I was with, the group I was with. 
And I would pack them in my bag, and I'd snack on those the rest of the day. They were delicious. They're, I love things that are sweet, and it was sweet and good, just like Fig Newtons. Anyway, I'd like those too with a glass of milk. <clears throat> so here's Jesus traveling with a group of his disciples after a couple days after the triumphal entry, and he's hungry, a reminder that he truly was human like you and me. He got hunger pangs, and you, you immediately look for a fig tree. And he looked at this particular fig tree, and there's an abundance of leaves on it. And the fig trees, you need to understand here, normally produce this kind of early fruit on it before the leaves even sprout. So according to Mark's gospel, we know that this time of the year in which this incident is taking place, we know that the figs would not be fully ripe yet. We understand that. But nonetheless, with the many leaves in place, there should have been a number of what we would call immature figs, figs that are not firmly uh, as sweet as they would get maybe. So as Jesus examines the tree, none were found. None was found. So he utters the announcement there in verse 19. No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. Now, with those words, this tree is doomed. That's it. Kaput. No more. The tree was placed under a divine curse. And it died at once. And the next morning, as the disciples walked past it again, they noticed, in Mark chapter 11, records it as the next morning, it was withered from the roots up. It complete all the leaves, everything, it was just dead. Very quickly. Now, you need to be careful here when we look at this text and say, wow, Jesus seems a little impetuous here. He seems like he's a little out of control. He gets a little frustrated and finding things. Let's be careful before you reach the conclusion that he's just become impatient because he's hungry. We don't need to think of it now like a child who oftentimes will pick up something that they want to play with, and since it doesn't work, what do they do? Throw it down, and they break it out of frustration. That's not the kind of example that Christ is offering here. There's much more going on here than just a, an irritation with something that disappointed him. The larger context must be borne in mind. What's really going on here? And Jesus is teaching a lesson, and his hunger is actually secondary as to what's going on here. We need to understand the background is that a fig tree, in this particular incident, is serving as a prophetic object lesson. Jesus is now going to use this illustration and try to teach a spiritual principle, just like many of the Old Testament prophets utilize symbolic acts of judgment in their warnings. For example, in Jeremiah 19, I'm sure this would be very vivid, uh, in which Jeremiah dramatically smashed a clay pot. And by the way, there's lots of those clay pot remnants and, and uh, pieces of those clay pots are all over Israel. I brought several home years ago also from uh, Israel. And uh, those things just sort of last. They never seem to fall, uh, ever decay. But anyway, he's got this clay pot, and he takes it, and he throws it down, makes a tremendous sound, and pieces are flying everywhere. And Jeremiah 19 says this. This is what the Almighty says, Jeremiah said. I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. What a vivid lesson that must have been for those people. So now 
Jesus, when he looks at this fig tree, perhaps he's recurring and reviewing in his mind the passage from Hosea chapter 9 in which Hosea referred to the fig tree as representing Israel and their spiritual condition. And so days before Jesus is to be murdered, days before he is a rejected prophet, he clearly sees the similarities between a barren fig tree that should have had figs on it, just had leaves, and the similarities to the nation of Israel. The nation of God's own choosing had exhibited an abundance of religious activity, but it lacked the genuine fruit of repentance and of regeneration. They are in the process of rejecting the Messiah, the majority of Israel. And Israel, like that fig tree, would soon be judged and soon would wither and die spiritually. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 15, Jesus had already made the comment and observation, we had seen this earlier, that Israel as such would honor God with their lips and they would go through their worship routine and they would do all these things that they were told to do. But he said, their hearts are far from me. And so Paul certainly saw that as true from his own experience as a Pharisee when he wrote in Romans chapter 10 that the Jews exhibited a zeal for God at that time, but not in accordance with knowledge. And so having purged the temple, Jesus and indicated that the prayer was not at the heart of most Jewish worship at that time. He symbolically made it clear on that day when he's walking along that road and saw that victory that the Jewish nation was condemned to spiritual barrenness. Despite elaborate rituals, despite all these priestly garments and widespread observance of the periodic festivals, the hearts of the people were not intent on honoring God. And Jesus was deeply troubled. That's what's really bothering him. He's deeply troubled at the corruption in the temple complex that he had just observed and the lack of God-honoring worship to be found there. Now we know earlier in his ministry in Luke chapter 13 that Jesus taught a parable about a fig tree. And in that parable, he had described the fact that there was a man who had planted a fig tree. He had waited one year, two years, Three years, still no figs. So he says to the guy who's tending the garden, he says, look, rip that thing out. Let's get rid of it. It's not producing anything. At that point in the story, in the parable he told, the farmer, the, the tender of the, of the farm there said, look, let's give it one more year. I'll cultivate it. I'll put some, some fertilizer on it, see if we can get miracle grow to produce anything, come, you know, come out of this fig tree. And the point of that parable was what? I'm being patient. I'm being patient with the process, seeing how little, for, little to no fruit is coming. There is patience, but there's coming a day when it finally will be removed. Well, now we're reaching that point. And so at the conclusion of his third year of ministry, Jesus inspects the fig tree of Israel. He found it to be barren. And instead of producing the fruit of glorifying God and portraying the redemptive role of the Messiah and magnifying God's grace, the temple complex produced a fruit of spiritual compromise and corruption. And so Jesus' assessment of the Pharisees, who were significantly seen to be the leaders of that particular uh, part of uh, the temple complex, if you read chapter 23, wow, you get a real earful 
of Jesus' condemnation of those who were leading this corrupt uh, temple uh, complex. These spiritual leaders who pride themselves on their performance of all these uh, various outward acts of piety, Jesus exposes them as hypocrites who concealed their self-indulgence and their lack of justice. They were very much involved in doing various things of injustice. So after hearing Jesus' prophetical words of judgment, it's no surprise that the crowds who cheered his arrival there in Jerusalem only a few days earlier, singing save and Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord, that now is going to turn. Why? Because Jesus is saying, that's it. This fig tree will no longer produce the fig tree of Israel. And he'll go on to explain that further on in chapter 21, 22. And so it's no surprise that they're going to cry out a few days from now in the chronology of how things unfold, crucify him, crucify him. Here's a prophet who gave a message we don't want to hear. We want to hear peace, peace. Everything's fine. And Jesus is telling him just the opposite. Like so many prophets before him, Jesus anticipated that the reaction of those who insist on their self-righteous goodness before God, when they're told about their spiritual barrenness, what kind of result and what kind of message would they know? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 23, they're out to destroy the messenger. The problem was not to look inside. The problem was to destroy the person who brought the message they didn't like to hear. What does that say about the spiritual dynamic going on in this first part of this passage in Matthew 21? I can't help but think it shows that principle of John chapter 3, which sadly but accurately describes the underlying spiritual dynamic in the hearts of people who might be outwardly religious, but whose hearts are spiritually barren, and they have no evidence of a true work of regeneration. The Spirit of God has not melted their heart from stone into a heart of flesh. They have not gone to repentance. They have not placed faith in Christ the Messiah as the only mediator and Savior. And this is what you read in John 3 as to why they would react the way in which they did. This is the judgment, verse 19, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So the real issue is here, their hearts are being exposed for what they really are, and Jesus is the one exposing them, and there is a response on the part of many people in his day that they could not stand him. They didn't want to hear the real truth about what he revealed. Now you say, what does that have to do with us? We're talking about Israel. I don't want to make an exact equation of where that should relate to us, but let me just say this. Sometimes Jesus does have to say things, even to his church, that at times seems unpleasant, even much more direct than we would want to hear, and may cause many of us to feel, wow, what's the big deal? Now, I say that because Jesus, if you read Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are seven churches that Jesus gives a message to each one of them from what we call Asia, what is currently Turkey in today's map, 
And he speaks to them in such a way in which he confronts them, affirming the fact that, yes, you do adhere to sound theology, you have orthodox doctrine, that's all good. But he says, you've left your first love. You don't love me anymore. You're just holding on to tradition. You're just going through the motions. And Jesus is calling his church to say, listen, your heart has turned cold. Embrace and surrender to me. Repent, he says, and, and follow me and love me and serve me and make me the one you're living for, not for yourself. And here, of course, Charles Spurgeon has a very helpful way in which he expands on this theme of from Matthew 21. What do we learn from it? He says, what a lesson for individuals to learn. May we tremble lest having a profession of godliness that we should wear it conspicuously and yet we should lack the fruit bearing of godliness. He says, the name of saintship, that is that we can have the names of being Christians, without the sanctity of holiness is a lie abhorrent to God and man, an offense against the truth, and the forerunner of a blithering blight. What's the point? The point is, some people need to have a word in which we are reminded of issues that we need to confront in our lives, and Jesus can become at that moment someone who offends us. If in his exposure of what's going on, our hearts are not willing to repent, and not willing to receive it, not willing to acknowledge a need to change in accordance with what he's revealed. But in this heavy, heavy message of of judgment, I find it fascinating that Matthew turns the corner very quickly and moves to a whole other way of looking at this text in Matthew 21. And there we find a pronouncement of hopefulness. Hopefulness. Here now we find a lesson on spiritual power through faith-filled prayer. This is fascinating to me. As I've looked at this text, Matthew, I'm sure, and the other disciples, at the time in which Jesus said those words, I don't think they necessarily connected all that he was saying about the significance of this tree withering and dying so quickly and suddenly, and realizing that probably it wasn't until 30-some years later, in 70 A.D., the Romans with Titus and his legions of armies came in there, surrounded Jerusalem, and I mean they dismantled that entire temple complex. All that is left of that are a few massive stones of the foundation that is called the Western Wailing Wall, even today. Everything else was dismantled. That was the sign of what? No longer is this corrupt religious rituals of that form of worship. Jesus said, that's it, no more. Now, What did the disciples gain from that particular incident here in Matthew 21? The disciples were duly impressed with the speed with which this fig tree withered. And so Jesus now is going to take their natural interest and curiosity, and they're being amazed by that, and he is going to use this as an opportunity to teach his disciples whose hearts are teachable. And he's going to see this as an opportunity to teach them an important lesson about what? about trusting Him, trusting in God, and prayer. And I thought to myself, well, why does He take this as the opportunity to teach this lesson when He's just taught this word of judgment on the other hand? How do these things fit together? May I suggest this as a possible way to look at it? 
Jesus wanted those who participated in the empty religious rituals and who exhibited no fruit of repentance and regeneration. He wanted them to know and come to the point where they said, I need to have a spiritual power at work inside of me, not just doing externals. They're in need of spiritual power. On the other hand, Jesus also wanted his disciples to learn that spiritual power will never be found in the realm of politics, in the realm of money, but in through prayer. That's where spiritual power is to be found. You see, hypocritical people merely going through the motions who make empty professions, relying on their own performance, exhibit no spiritual fruit of inner spiritual transformation. Anybody can keep rules. Anybody can keep rules for a certain period of time. Now, I say that because it dawned on me as I was reading on vacation, I read a book, it's fairly old, that's about 10 years old, um, written by Gracia Burnham, uh, whose husband and she were kidnapped by a terrorist group in the Philippines in about 2001. They were held for over a year as hostages, waiting for somebody to pay some fee to, to then let them be released. As it turns out, he was shot by the Filipino, Filipino army. Uh, she also was shot, but she survived. He died. Anyway, uh, in reading the book, she described the group of people who were kidnapped them, uh, the Abu Sayyaf. And she described them, and here they are now, as people who are brutal people. They are pillaging all these villages, going in and just taking anything they want uh, and stealing and, you know, just whatever. People are living in fear of these people. They're beheading various infidels along the way that they feel like have stepped over the line. They'll just cut their head off. And they hold these hostages, which start out with quite a number of them, probably over 20 initially, and then as they kept getting the payments, they let them go. And she describes the fact that she's so thirsty, going from town to town, running away from the authorities, and they've saved a lot of the water that they carried for their ritual washings. And so every day, three times a day, they would stop what they're doing, and they wash their hands, they wash their elbows, they wash their head, put some on their hair, they wash their, out their mouth, they, their feet. They went through this very elaborate washings. And yet here they are as terrorists, killing people, pillaging, stealing. I mean, it's just... People can keep all kinds of rituals. It doesn't mean that heart has changed at all toward God. And so the lesson here that Jesus is trying to emphasize, I, am, I would like to suggest to you, is that true spiritual fruitness, fruitfulness, true spiritual power indicating of a, of a change that God is working in our hearts will never be generated on your own. It is God who must do that work. And therefore, the power is in God, and the means to access that power is through Jesus Christ, and the way in which we seek that power is through humble prayer. That look beyond ourselves, that is, people who are too busy trying to do a bunch of rituals and to try to do and do and do, miss out on the fact that they are to look to God in helpless lifting up of empty hands saying, Lord, I need, I am desperate, I am weak, I need your power. Jesus emphasized in verses 21 and 22 that those who remain in vital communion with Him and who rely upon Him in this complete relational trust 
and surrender will be empowered to see dramatic changes take place. <laughs> John, 7, John 15, 7 says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will, it will be done unto you. Wow! How can you have that kind of confidence? Well, abiding and communing with Christ, having His Word abide in you, knowing His will, knowing the things that God wants to see happen in your life. You're going to see things happen in your life if that is the condition that you've met. Rather than relying on your performance of pious deeds, which can be done, again, by your own strength, by anybody who can keep rules for a period of time, Jesus insists that spiritual power is secured through faith-filled prayer. It's not you having confidence in yourself. He says, I want you to have confidence in me, the object of your faith. And sometimes as we live the Christian life and we're Christ followers, we keep thinking, oh, it's up to me. I've got to do this. I've got to try harder. Oh, I must have failed. Oh, the problem is with me. No, the problem is we've forgotten who the object of our faith is. We don't spend time in prayer. We don't, be, we don't sit quietly before the Lord and remind ourselves of His promises, of, of who is the one I'm coming to. Does He have any power to help me in my struggles and weaknesses? Now look at what Jesus said here, and you've got to ask yourself, the casting of the Mount of Olives down suddenly 4,000 feet of elevation from where Jerusalem is down to the Mediterranean Sea, 4,000 feet lower, and who knows how many miles far away, was not something that Jesus literally expected his disciples to be, to be doing. The concept of rooting up a mountain was a common metaphor to figure of speech, and it referred to doing the impossible. So if we can understand that is what they would have heard him to be saying, Jesus wanted his disciples to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that unimaginable power is available to those who fully trust in Him. And Jesus chose His words in such a way that He emphasized, watch this now, He's trying to build faith. Faith in Him. Trust in Him. And notice what He says, truly I say to you, He's saying what? Bank on this. I'm telling you the truth. It will happen. You will receive. It is assumed that the thing requested here, of course, Jesus has in mind, the thing requested, whatever we're asking for, is, it is in the will of God. 1 John 5.14, you need to understand that as part of the assumption here that Jesus is making. You say, well, how did this play out? I would suggest you read through the book of Acts and say, did you ever see the power of God shown in the book of Acts? You better believe it. In the lives of these apostles... You read the account of the apostles doing things that seem like impossible, that here they are proclaiming words which to, to them at the time must have seemed like to, to their peers as being, give me a break, talking about some Messiah who dies on a cross? Come on! But yes, he rose from the dead, and they're calling people to repent, they're calling people to trust and believe upon Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and what happens? The impossible! Thousands of people come to faith! through one guy who stood and bore witness to those truths. On a later occasion, the church gathered and prayed for Peter in prison. Here as he prays for Peter in prison, what happens to Peter? The church is gathered, they're praying, 
It is through their prayers that we finally understand that there's an angel that ushers Peter past the guards and through the locked gates. And next thing you know, Peter's knocking at the door where the church is gathered to pray. It was so astounding, it was so impossible, quote-unquote, that the person greeting him saying, uh, this can't really be Peter because we know Peter's in jail. Who are you? They couldn't believe it. You read, later on, you read of Silas and Paul. Beaten, bloody, in pain, chained. At late at night, singing hymns of praise to God. You think that's not power of God? The Spirit of God working in somebody's life? If you ever see somebody rejoicing in the Lord in the midst of suffering and trials, as we sang earlier today, blessed be the God. He's given, He's taken away. People that say that and mean it are people who what? Are exhibiting tremendous evidence of the Spirit's work in their heart and life. And what happens in the power of the Spirit? In Acts 16, here comes the jailer in the midst of a great earthquake, ready to take his life, commit suicide, and here they offer him the gospel. His life is changed. His family's life is changed. And you see the power of God at work doing things you cannot explain. They're utterly impossible apart from the Spirit of God. What's the point here? My friend, you and I, so often in life, we get to focus too much on ourselves. It's on what we're doing, it's on what we say, it's what we not do, it's what we shouldn't have said. We have too much introspection into ourselves. We fail to look at the object of our faith, to have our confidence in Him, to look to Him to do the impossible. If you're struggling with a sin, have you prayed about it? Have you looked to the one who died for you, the one whose power is available to you, the one who is indeed interceding for you even now? I love the words of John Newton in his hymn about prayer. He says, you are coming to a king, he says. Large petitions with you bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. If we know God and we know His will to us, the more we're reading the Word, the more we can ask boldly for Him to do great and mighty things. May that be, indeed, our response. May that be the fruit that God sees in our hearts and lives is the heart that is a humble child looking to a great and mighty King, asking Him of great things with a faith, not that strong, but a faith in an object of one worthy of such great petitions. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come to you as a king, wealthy, all-powerful, majestic, reigning king. And Lord, we would indeed this day, we would bring before you great petitions, large petitions, Lord, some of us are here today, Lord, we're overwhelmed. Our problems, our struggles, our internal battles, our temptations that we are failing to deal with. Many of us, Lord, have had such a difficult week or a difficult month. Our hearts have, Lord, become cold toward you. Other things, other idols have captured our devotion, Lord. So we bring great petitions to you. Lord Jesus, would you soften our hearts?
increase our love for you. Help us to see the foolishness of our idolatrous ways. Help us to see the graciousness and the love and the mercy that we receive at your throne because of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would do a mighty work in us. Help us, Lord, to be a, a, a people who pray, not with doubts, but who pray, believing that you are a God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or even imagine. Father, I pray that you would find in us the fruit of faith. Confidence in you. Not confidence in ourselves, Lord. We don't want to be confident in ourselves. We always are messing up. We're always disappointing ourselves and you and other people. But Lord, we thank you that our confidence is in Jesus Christ, our mediator, our redeemer, our Lord, our gracious and merciful King. So Father, increase our faith, we pray. We believe. Help our unbelief. Even as we spend time around your table this day, Lord, give us faith in Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.